Amen. Wow. God has blessed this body with a lot of talent. Praise God. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And as you turn there, I want you to consider what is the most important question in life. What is the most important question in life? Because this morning's text, we look at that square in the face. Life's most important question. It's been lingering and echoing in our ears through Luke. Starting with Luke's preface to Theophilus, that he's writing these things so, so that Theophilus might be certain of the things in which he's been taught. We come to a conclusion on the matter. Certainty. Beginning then with the disciples in the boat when the storm is calmed. Who then is this? Echoing off of Herod's lips in chapter 9 as Herod is befuddled and confounded by Jesus. That ultimate question of who is Jesus is then put directly to the apostles and directly to us, the reader, this morning. Luke and Jesus both believe enough has transpired, enough evidence has been given, enough proofs have been furnished for an informed, confident, and final decision and answer to that question to be given. And what we'll see is the answer to that question, life's ultimate question, who is Jesus? A lot depends on that. And as this passage unfolds, and we'll look at it over two weeks, we'll see that ultimately our understanding of who He is will inform our understanding of who we are and ultimately determine our future. Glory or destruction. Let's read Luke 9, 18-27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist. But Others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And this is one unit of text in Luke. And Luke makes that clear because if you look at the very next verse, verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, what sayings? What we just read. It, it starts with, now it happened, which is a break in time. And so Jesus' question to Peter follows three parts. Jesus' question to Peter, 
and the apostles and their answer. Then as Jesus unfolds his mission and what he is going to do, and then he will further elaborate on their discipleship. Those three sayings, those three sections form a unit. And after we look at that over two weeks, we'll move to the transfiguration. And this morning, we're going to look at the true identity of the Messiah, the true identity of the Messiah. As we'll learn this morning, knowing who Jesus is and what that means is crucial, is essential, is the most important thing you can know in life. And knowing who Jesus is and what that means will then inform your understanding of who you are and what that means. That's the flow of the text. Now thus far in Luke's Gospel, we have had much testimony to the identity of Jesus. We have the testimony of heaven in Luke 2.11, where the angels say, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then we have the testimony of the Scriptures of the narrator Luke himself, revealing of Simeon that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So the angels, he's the Christ. The narrator, Luke, the Scripture, he's the Christ. Jesus himself in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And I probably should pause here and make something clear that I think is helpful. The, The word anointed in English is what we translate the Hebrew word messiach, which we get Messiah. Messiah is simply the transliteration, it's not translating the Hebrew word, it's just bringing it on over, of what we would call anointed. And when you translate messiach into Greek, you get Christos. So anointed, Messiah, and Christ are English, Hebrew, and Greek for the exact same thing. They're interchangeable. So if we're talking about the Christ, we're talking about the Messiah, we're talking about the Lord's anointed. That'll help as we read passages this morning that they're interchangeable terms. You're just switching languages. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me, and there's that word, to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus identifies Himself as the Lord's anointed, as the Lord's Messiah. And then in Luke 4.41, we saw the testimony of hell. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them. and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. But as of yet, in Luke's Gospel, no character in the pages who is not possessed by a demon or supernatural has confessed that Jesus is the Christ. He's confessed it. The angels have confessed it. The demons have confessed it. The narrator has confessed it. This morning, we're going to see the very first confession that Jesus is Christ on the lips of Peter speaking for the apostles. So let's dive in. We're going to look at this in in three points, beginning with Peter confesses Jesus' true identity. Peter confesses Jesus' true identity. Now, you may not know this in reading Luke, but as you try to harmonize the Gospels, we learn from reading Matthew, Mark, and John that a number of other events have taken place between the feeding of the 5,000 and Peter's confession. In fact, Matthew 14 to 16 is devoted to events that take place in between. 
But that's because Luke wants us to track this thread. He's been tracking this thread of who is Jesus, who is Jesus, Herod, who is Jesus, and here's the answer. And the feeding of the 5,000, or closer to 20,000 when you factor in the women and children, is the one miracle apart from the resurrection that's in all four Gospels. It is such a miracle on such a massive scale, both the number of people fed and how long the miracle continued. We thought about that last week, of how long it would take Jesus to multiply that many loaves and that many fishes potentially hours. This was a massive miracle in its scope and the people who saw it, and a massive miracle over time. And Luke now thinks that we're going to go from this culmination of a miracle of culmination to now affirmation. It also is connected in Luke's mind by, by we saw last week, Jesus was sought out by the crowds when he was actually trying to get alone with his disciples. We, we know from Luke that Jesus was a man of prayer and solitude just as much as he was a man of the public life. And so what he began to do and was thwarted in a sense, interrupted by the crowds, back in verse 10, he took them and withdrew to a town called Bethsaida. And we learn later they're in a desolate place. They withdrew privately to a desolate place, presumably for some time of prayer, presumably for some time of instruction with the disciples. And the crowds show up, and Jesus welcomed them, and he ministered to them all day until the day was spent. Where do we pick up now? Back where Jesus was originally attempting to go in verse 10. It happened as he was praying alone. And Luke, more than any of the other Gospels, emphasizes again and again this context of Jesus as a man of prayer. Seven different times in Luke's gospel, we are told Jesus was praying alone. And this is significant. We saw it first in Luke 4.22. The people saw it and came to him, but he went away and departed into a desolate place. Luke 5.16, after healing the leper, he withdrew to a desolate place to pray. And most specifically, the last time we saw it, it was in preparation for choosing the apostles in Luke 16, 6, 12 to 13. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. And just a few verses later, if you look at verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Are you, are you getting the emphasis? This is the context that Luke gives us. And it, it seems odd because prayer and a discussion with the disciples seems like at odds things, right? He was praying alone, so he asked his disciples. The connection Luke's trying to make is this. In his gospel, Jesus' prayer life is directly connected to the revelation of knowledge from heaven. So that the last time Jesus labored in prayer all night, he comes out of that knowing who to pick, knowing his disciples who to pick. The inference we're supposed to get as a result of this alone prayer time, Jesus now from the Father has the information he needs to choose his disciples. Well, the exact same pattern is going to happen here. And again, in, in chat verses 28, on the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens? God speaks. Knowledge is revealed. Moses and Elijah come down in the context of Jesus' prayer. Here, three, three pieces of information are added to our narrative. First, Peter, in the context of Jesus' prayer, finally puts it together for the apostles. You're the Lord's Christ. You're God's Messiah. Then we're going to see for the very first time in Luke's Gospel, 
a new theme and thread be introduced that will become dominant, which is the suffering and death of the Messiah. Hinted at, hinted at in the, in the prophecy of Simeon, a sword will pierce your side. Hinted at in Jesus' own comparing himself to the prophets who were rejected, but never spoken as plainly as this. That's new. That's a new thread to Luke. And then, third, and what we'll look at mostly next week, we'll just scratch this week, is the deepening understanding of what it means to be Jesus' disciple. All three of these things. Peter's understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus' understanding and communication to the disciples of what the Messiah will do. And then Jesus explaining to the disciples what it means to be a disciple. This is all new themes or developed themes in Luke's gospel. And all of this new knowledge is connected to Jesus' prayer life. Just, just think about that. We, we, I, I put myself in that group. We, we, we trifle with prayer, take it so lightly. We live in a world with so many distractions and blinking lights and buzzing beepers. Jesus had none of that. And yet he still, to get the type of prayer he wanted, had to go to remote places and mountains. Think about that. I mean, if you're going to try to have a healthy, strong, vibrant prayer life, just sort of catching a few moments when you can, if the sinless Son of God needed to isolate himself, to get away, to remove distractions, you're fooling yourself if you think you're going to have a healthy, strong, vibrant prayer life and you don't equally make time, isolate yourself. We've got so many distractions, the tyranny of the urgent, new emails, new texts, new buzzers, new lights flashing, and I am right there with you with all of my gadgets and blinking lights. And just challenged this week as I was reading this about, (laughs) he lived before all of that, and he had no sin nature, and yet he regularly sought out isolation. He regularly carved out time to get away, to get alone. How much more ought we... I was talking to someone earlier this week who was confessing to me that they were struggling with their prayer life. And as I've been studying this passage further this week, I just became convicted and for myself and for everyone that we would carve out time, that we would follow this example. Look how much knowledge, look how much clarity, look how much putting of things together happens as a result in Luke's gospel of Jesus' prayer life. I have to guess perhaps he was praying in part for his disciples because they're some of the recipients here of this knowledge and understanding. The context, praying alone with the disciples. And then he asked them two questions. Question number one, who do the crowds say that I am? Why would he ask them that? Well, he just sent them out on a little missions trip, a little proclamation trip. They're sort of apostolic internship And so as they're going about, they're proclaiming the kingdom of God. They're proclaiming Jesus as king. They'd be in a position to know how that proclamation was received and what the crowds thought. In many respects, this is the perennial question today. It seems every Christmas time and every Easter time, Time Magazine or or some newspaper puts out some some new program or article, discovering the real Jesus, that the culture at large is obsessed with discovering and rediscovering and re-examining who is this Jesus, the historical Jesus. It's nothing new under the sun. And, and we've seen in Luke's Gospel that, that these people in the region of Israel were equally thinking and talking, whether it's the king, Herod, the Tetrarch, or the disciples themselves, so he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? What does human opinion say? 
And notice, the crowds in no way attempt to deny Jesus' miracles and, and his mighty works. No attempt to do that at all. What's their answer? John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets of old has risen. What they're, what they're saying is that he is a preacher, and he's a prophet, and he's, maybe, he's a miracle worker. They'll grant that much. That, that's undeniable. No one ever spoke like this man. He's doing things the prophets did. He's doing many mighty works, but what we see is that the popular opinion was insufficient. The popular opinion was insufficient. And after all, it's not like they had to just piece it together. Jesus himself told them who he was. We saw that in chapter 4, verse 18 through 21, when he read Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He said clearly, Isaiah 61, what Isaiah, the, the, the Messiah who Isaiah wrote about, that's me. Clear as day. This isn't some mystery. Likewise today, it's not for want of an answer to the question that the culture perennially tries to rediscover who Jesus is. If you'll, if you'll accept the biblical record, the answer is clear. It's only when you reject that and want to lean on the wisdom of man that we can reinvent and rediscover who Jesus is. No, the popular opinion is insufficient. Totally insufficient. So then Jesus asked them a second question. And here it's final exam time. They've been with Jesus now many months. They've seen many mighty miracles. They've seen him grant them power over demons and disease. They've seen all of this. He asks them, who do you say that I am? Now the you there is emphatic and it's plural. He's asking all the disciples, who do you all say that I am? And that's, that's the question. That is the question that I think Luke, in putting it this way, is, is asking to us. That's the question that ultimately matters, deciding in your own mind who is Jesus. And as we'll see, figuring out who Jesus is will then determine who you are. It will inform your understanding of who you are. Who is Jesus? And in light of who Jesus is, who am I? Let's see what Peter says. Peter stands up and he's speaking for the disciples. He speaks for them all. This is frightening, because all would then include Judas, wouldn't it? You are the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. He, he passes the final exam. That's an interesting phrase, Christ of God. It doesn't occur in the ESV, in the Old Testament. It does occur one other time in Luke's Gospel at the crucifixion. They say to him, if you are the Christ of God, save yourself. That's it. The Christ of God. So what, what does that mean, Christ of God? Because this is crucial. This is, this is the confession the church will be built upon. This is, this is the confession that the book of Acts, as Luke writes his sequel, goes on to establish the priority of in Acts 5.42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. What's the early 
first-generation apostolic church trying to convince people of. They're trying to convince their fellow countrymen that Christ is Jesus. Acts 17, verses 2 to 4, the Apostle Paul doing the same thing. Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's the Christ. Putting it negatively, 1 John 2, 22 says this, who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. And probably putting it most climactically of all, the end of John's gospel, when he says, here's why I wrote. Here's why I've constructed this gospel. Here's why I've sat down and written this. Now, Jesus did many other signs. This is John 20, verses 30 to 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. By believing, you may have life in his name. That that's why settling this question is the most important and paramount question. Because faith, believing in who Jesus is and what he has done, gives life. Heaven and hell weigh in the balances. Heaven and hell weigh in the balances. And, and so Peter says, you are the Christ. But we've got to stop for a moment and, and, and understand what Peter probably means by that. As I tracked through the Old Testament trying to find this phrase, I couldn't find the Christ of God, but I could find a few references to the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's anointed, instead of God's Messiah, the Lord's, which seems a pretty close fit. First time it shows up is in Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, 10 through 11. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give them strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ. A little later in 1 Samuel, as Samuel is stepping down, making way for Saul, now behold, he says, the king walks before you, that's Saul, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. He's referring to Saul. At the end of Daniel, David's days, in 2 Samuel 23.1, he writes, these are the last words of David. The oracles of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob. You notice that connection. Whenever that possessive phrase, the Lord's anointed, shows up, it's connected with the throne. In other words, there are many men in the Old Testament who are anointed by God, who in some sense are messianic in that sense. I mean, the, the priests were anointed with oil. But eventually, this broader anointing narrows down to the throne, narrows down to the king, is the one who is spoken of as the Lord's anointed. Turn, turn to Psalm 2. Turn to Psalm 2, where this comes together most clearly and most fully, and that phrase, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ, shows up clearly. And this is important because I believe this is mostly what Peter had in mind when he said that. And it's true as far as it goes. But as we'll see in a second, Jesus felt the need to supplement Peter's understanding immediately. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, His Messiah, His Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See how the Lord's anointed is the king? I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Psalm 2, unifying kingship, messiahship, sonship, together, one man, one person, one great Davidic son coming. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me. I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ of God in, in, in Peter's understanding? It means... I think primarily that he is the coming king of Israel. He is the coming king of Israel. Not just the coming king, but the triumphant, conquering king. He will smash Rome with his rod of iron and break them like a potter's vessel. He will destroy and annihilate their enemies. From sea to shining sea, from the ends of the earth, his rule will be absolute. As the Psalm 2 says, right? This is Jesus. And they're preaching this kingdom, the kingdom of God. God's Davidic ruler is here. You're the Christ of God. Beginning to see why Jesus needed to immediately supplement and tell him, don't, I strictly charge you not to tell anybody this. So Peter's right. He's figured, you aren't just some great prophet. You aren't just some profitable. You are the Lord's Christ. You are the coming king of Israel. And in the book of Revelation, three times that language of rod of iron and smashing is taken up again. Jesus will return as that conquering triumphant king. Peter is right. Jesus is Psalm 2. But as Peter confesses Jesus' true identity, that leads then Jesus to reveal his own true mission to them. Jesus' own true mission to them, verses 21 to 22. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. It always struck me as odd as a new believer reading through the Gospels that with such an emphasis in the epistles and even in John's Gospel that it's so critical, it's so crucial that people come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. What could be more important than persuading people that Jesus is the Christ? It always struck me odd that <laughs> Jesus here and in other places is forbidding people. Don't, don't tell them that. Don't. Notice how he even shifts the title for himself to the Son of Man. Strictly charges them, don't, don't, don't tell people that. Why? What could explain that? It's not what you'd expect, right? You'd think, you'd imagine, hey, they finally got it. Okay, I'm going to send you out again this time. Now tell the people that. 
Instead, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Why? I can think of at least two reasons. One of them are in your notes. First, as I've hinted out already, they would almost certainly be misunderstood. They would almost certainly be misunderstood. Israel was looking for the triumphant king. Israel was looking for Psalm 2. Israel was looking for someone who would cast off the shackles and the oppression and the shame of being under the Roman thumb. They wanted vindication. They wanted exaltation. They wanted to be lifted up high among the nations. That wasn't what was going to happen right now. In fact, in John's gospel, the very next day after Jesus fed the 5,000, in John 6, the people come across and they want to make him king by force. He would have none of it. He withdrew for them. Why? I'll, I'll go fight against the Romans for a king who can feed me magic bread every day and raise me from the dead like he did Jairus' daughter, like he did the widow's son. I'll go fight for that king. Sure. Mount up. Let's go. He would almost certainly be misunderstood. There's another reason why Jesus forbids them from telling this to anyone. Jesus is just ending his Galilean ministry. He's going to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's going to meet with Moses and Elijah and his father. God will speak. He'll come down from the mountain. And then in Luke's gospel begins his dogged, perseverant trek to Jerusalem. He's done with Galilee. And what did Jesus say earlier in Luke chapter 8, verse 18? Take care then how you hear. For to one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. The crowds, the people have seen the evidence. They've seen sufficient proof. Jesus has declared who he is. His miracles have declared who he is. What's the best they've come up with? Well, there's some type of prophet, maybe John, maybe Elijah, I don't know. Okay. What you have will be taken from you. Tell no one. What immediately follows Peter putting together what he has. Jesus gives him more. It's exactly what he said in 8.10. I mean, 8.18. The one who has more will be given. Peter, you're the Messiah of God. Great, Peter. Let me tell you what that means. And the rest of these people, don't tell them. They've had light. They've had opportunity. This is that second thread of Jesus' ministry of judgment and of hardening. But let's look at what he says moving on to his disciples. He strictly charged them to tell no one because they'd almost certainly be misunderstood and because there's a sense in which Galilee had had sufficient light. A little later, he's going to pronounce condemnation on the region. And then he tells them something the disciples simply will not believe. And here for the first time, clearly in Luke's Gospel, is a clear, unadulterated, inescapable declaration of the suffering and death of the Messiah. He says to them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's introduced here for the very first time and it becomes dominant in Luke. A little later, I'll just read some passages in Luke 9, 44-45. Let these words sink into your ears. 
The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So he's told them once here. He tells them again in verses 44 to 45, they don't get it. Chapter 13, 32 to 33, he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. On the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way and tomorrow and the day afterward, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish apart from Jerusalem. And chapter 18, verses 31, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. In Luke 24, the angel says he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day? Again, if you're like me, when I was a first reading these passages as a new believer, that struck me as odd. He told them pretty plainly. These guys are pretty stupid. You, you, you got to factor in just how much they were looking for Psalm 2. How much they were looking for, yearning for that vindication. Yearning for God to exalt them. Yearning for God to smash their enemies. Yearning for the shame of not even having their own king, but a Roman ruler paying taxes to Caesar. And how oxymoronic and paradoxical the notion that this messianic ruling king who will smash nations with a rod of iron would be put to death and crucified. They just can't put that together. Absolutely can't put that together. And he tells them again and again and again, and they just they can't figure it out. Who could stop Jesus? We've seen what he can do. Clearly, you're Psalm 2. Clearly, you're the Lord's Messiah. And he tell them he was going to die, and you just imagine the disciples. What was that stuff about him dying? I don't know. They just went on. Even after the resurrection, they're still having a hard time putting that together. It would kind of be like today... Imagine, you know, as, as we look at our country, and I know people to greater and lesser degrees are, are passionate, concerned about where things are headed, and there's this sort of overwhelming desire that someone could come and fix, get America back, fix America, save America. And someone came and said, okay, that politician right there, that, that politician will be the one to fix everything, to put it right, to, to, to get it back to the way it was, and he will be beaten in a landslide at the coming election. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Because we only think of fixing America in that sense, in political terms, and in terms of what office you can hold. And the thought of someone who could do that not holding office, that doesn't make sense. The thought of a Messiah who could fulfill Psalm 2, who would be beaten, crucified, and killed, doesn't make any sense. What's important then is, is not just that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, but get this that you have some biblical understanding of what that means. Immediately after Peter says this, stop, don't tell anybody, let me tell you more what this means. Islam will recognize Jesus as a prophet. Other religions recognize Jesus as a prophet. What does it mean? Christ is not his last name. His office, it is his title. Jesus Messiah. 
And Jesus now makes it clear. He doesn't challenge in any way that he's Psalm 2, that he is that ruling king. And he makes it also clear something else. When God sends his king into the world, and this is what's so amazing and so breathtaking about the gospel, God's king comes not in strength but in weakness. God's king does not come in pomp, with an entourage. He's born in a lowly stable. God's king does not here crush his enemies. In fact, he defeats his enemies by giving himself up to die. He overcomes evil with good. This is a new type of power and authority. This is a new type of kingdom. That's why we sing songs like, Down at your feet, O Lord, is the most high place. Because we've learned the act that Jesus did that brought him the most glory, that according to Philippians 2, led to his exaltation, receiving a name above all names, was his self-sacrifice and humbling himself. Point B, the Son of Man must suffer many things. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Now that title, Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite self-designation. He uses it many, many, many times. And so as Jesus now gives the disciples more, he shifts from Messiah to Son of Man. I think the reason Jesus liked the title Son of Man was because it was, it was honestly kind of sly. There's a sense in which Son of Man means earthling, human. But it also is the title predominantly used for Ezekiel, the prophet. And so he could use the title Son of Man, and you know people would understand perhaps he's claiming to be a par with Ezekiel. And so in that sense, that title would, would not trip off the radar of the Pharisees There's another son of man, however, in Daniel chapter 7. Let me read this to you. I saw in the night visions, and behold, to the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, Jesus makes it clear just prior to the crucifixion to the the scribes and the Jewish religious leaders, that's what he means by Son of Man. He makes it clear here. So it's a a title that for those who have ears to hear, they're going to pick up on it. They're going to get it. And for everyone else, it's not going to trip off their radar. I mean, look. He says here, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and on the third day raised. And then he says in verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Yeah, he's talking about Daniel 7, not Ezekiel. He's the Son of Man. He's, he's Daniel 7. And when the scribes and the priests understand that that's what he means... What more is there to say? Kill him. That's blasphemy. So Jesus adopts this title, the Son of Man, as a more covert messianic title and informs his disciples of the unthinkable and not for the last time that he will be rejected, he will be killed, and he'll be raised. Be rejected, he'll be killed, and he'll be raised. 
this information again, Luke connects with Jesus' prayer life. He's going to go up on the mountain and talk with Moses and Elijah at length about exactly that. About the exodus that he was soon to accomplish in Jerusalem. God's Messiah will be rejected, killed, and raised. It's not the way you expect a conquering king who sets up a kingdom to come. But in the wisdom of God, this foolishness is wiser than men. Quickly, I just want to look briefly, we'll look at it in length next week, at verses 23 to 27. He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and daily follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So the flow of the logic is this. Jesus is in prayer, and in the context of prayer, new information is given or revealed. First, as Peter finally, speaking for the apostles, puts it together, you are the Christ of God. And then Jesus, for the first time in Luke's gospel, speaking plainly about the fact that the Lord's Messiah will suffer, be rejected, killed, and raised. So who is Jesus? That's the crucial question. He's the Christ of God. What does that mean? He is the one who came to die for our sins. That, that's what it means. He's the one who was rejected. He was the one who gave up his rights. He was the one who ultimately turned the other cheek. And what Jesus connects inseparably on this crucial question of who is Jesus is if we understand who he is, then we will understand who we must be as his disciples. There's no mention of a cross previously, is there? It shows up here. Speaking of what his disciples must do, they follow suit. Did not Jesus say in Luke 6.40, the disciple is not above his teacher? And we live in a country that has created the prosperity gospel and the prosperity gospel light where you can have your best life now. And so it can be shocking and it can be difficult for Christians as they enter into life to realize that what Jesus plainly says here, that those who would be his disciples, notice he doesn't just say this to the 12 in verse 23, he said to all, and then to further make it general, if anyone, you can't limit this to the audience. Remember I've talked about some things are you know, situation specific, can't do that here. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, pause, Cross at this point is not a piece of jewelry. Cross at this point means one thing and one thing only. Jesus hasn't died yet. So it's not even associated with Christianity. Cross is that disgusting, terrifying, awful means of torture and death. That, that's what crosses mean. You might as well say, pick up your electric chair. Although the electric chair is not as horrible. Pick up your firing squad and come after me. This is a call to die or be willing to. And we get shocked and dismayed and we don't understand when the Lord calls us into hard places and suffering. And I read through the Gospels and Jesus is so clear about this. 
But somehow we've bought into this notion that if you're a good little Christian, you'll have a good little life that's generally pretty smooth. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. As a, as, as a Christian, you're called, and here's point A, a true disciple follows Jesus' example. He denied himself. Father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And the student is not greater than the teacher. So we, too, deny ourselves. And Jesus is going to resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. He's not going to turn from it. And likewise, his disciples pick up their crosses and follow him. What are the stakes? Some people want to argue, well, this is just for discipleship. You can be a Christian, get into heaven, and then there's disciples who deny themselves and follow Jesus. That won't work. Verse 25, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This is about gaining the world or losing your soul. What Jesus makes clear in point B is a true disciple will save his life by losing it. A true disciple will save his life by losing it. See, the flow of thought, I want you to think about this as we transition, get ready to transition to a communion, is this. you got to understand that Jesus is the Christ. you got to. But as, as Peter confesses that, and he's been faithful with the light he has, Jesus gives him more. And you've got to understand that this, this Christ, this King, is a humble, serving, self-denying, ultimately dying King. And if you understand that, then you understand that we have no greater rights than him. We have no greater expectation of, of nice treatment. And we too must follow. As we understand his identity, we understand who we must be. First Peter puts it this plainly, for to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. Now that's not going to be easy. But, but, but let us not be surprised and confused. Lord, why? What? It, it, it's here, plain. Because too much is given, much is accountable for. If you understand who Jesus is, then you are accountable for understanding who you must be as his disciple. And we'll unpack that more next week. Let's close in a word of prayer as we transition to communion. Lord God, we just pray that you would open the eyes of any here who, who may be blind, that we might come to a conviction that we might share in that confession of Peter, that we might have no doubts, that our minds might be firmly made up, that Jesus is your anointed, your Christ, your Messiah. Let us be in awe that you sent your son, you sent your king, you sent your anointed to die in humility as a servant, not to be served. And, O oh Lord, let us, seeing and understanding that, be willing to follow and serve and, be, and not demand to be served. Let us understand what it means to be disciples of the Lord, that we will be conformed to his image and his pattern of life. Lord God, as we come to your table now to celebrate that Jesus came to give himself, let us do it in a worthy manner. In Jesus' name, amen.